I think um, I'm thrown into more of a conundrum. But um, you know, generally summarizing what you both said, I feel incrementally less afraid of death. If anything, I feel more curious about it. You know, I, I feel like, huh? You know, what would it? Geez, it's just it's it is so interesting. It is that it's that you know, maybe the most certain uncertainty. You know, it's just like it's gonna come anyway. So knowing that, knowing that, you know. It's just, it's, it's uh, absolutely fascinating. I'm feeling at the moment really excited and curious and um, yeah, I look forward to where we go with this. And also I've been tangling with the question that you um, put forward us because mm. I think um, like Shashwat said I've been trying to think really hard because I think it's a it's a really good question because you can go many mm. places with it okay um, yeah but maybe we can start there um, in terms of there's so many questions that we don't know the answers to a lot of mysteries that we have mm. um, in your mind was what do you think is the greatest unsolved mystery or the, the greatest question that we are still trying to figure out mm. So my immediate um, answer to that w- would be death. When I posed this question, this question to Shashwat, that was what was on my mind. I was thinking um, about a you know a, 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 um, a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, who passed away a few years ago due to cancer, and um, I think about him often. But uh, but on that particular uh, day, I was thinking about where he was and really trying to understand where, you know, where, where's my friend right now, you know, uh, whether that is in a, a metaphysical place, you know, in a spiritual place, just really trying to imagine where he could possibly be. And, and like you said, Xavier, you know, there, you could, this, 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 this sort of question has, has, you know, infinite number of answers to it. And, and in the same regard, you know, uh, the, the mystery of death has a lot of, uh, you know, potential, potential, um, you know, theories that try to illustrate what death is or what it look like. So I was thinking, you know, I was thinking, yeah, is it, is, you know, is it, is it selfish of me to, to constantly be wishing that my friend were here, you know, uh, to constantly be imagining his presence, you know, imagining, oh, he were, you know, he'd be 22 this year, you know, and trying to imagine how he looks like and, and it just got me thinking, it's like, this is something that I myself personally do not have the capacity, you know, the cognitive capacity, uh, you know, the poetic capacity to try and imagine um, where he is. I, I, I simply cannot know. I mean, I would, I would refrain maybe from saying cannot know. Uh, perhaps we will one day reach a point where we do know. But, but then again, I never do believe we, we know anything absolutely so. So, you know, just sort of grappling with this idea of death and, 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 um, and then, you know, also thinking about, about fear and how death and fear uh, may at times uh, go hand in hand, you know, what, what is it about death that, that makes us fearful? And perhaps the, the I guess, the, the anchor for both of these ideas is uncertainty, you know, maybe, maybe on a smaller scale where afraid of just walking out our door one day because we don't know what might happen. We could get hit by a car, you know, that's an unknown. That's always gonna be an unknown. 
but maybe death is the biggest unknown for me at least in my life because it's i mean the way i see it it's it's uh, it's almost the complete opposite of life in my understanding of death in my humble understanding of death and life i would say that that you know life resides here on the spectrum and death here so uh, short summary of i guess where I'm, where i'm coming at this conversation from So that triggered and, a, go, go ahead, Usama. What were you saying? Oh, I was just, I was just gonna ask, uh, you know, what you both, what you both think about that death in yeah. particular, and also, and just in general, uh, what you personally think is is the biggest unknown in your own life or in in the you know in the lives of of us as a as a species. So I'd like to respond to that. I think death somewhere comes into the equation of that unknown because it's that thing that. Absolutely. I mean, death is just a word that we give to it. Who really knows what it means? It, I think it raises questions such as uh, the nature of who we are truly and what it means when we don't exist, we cease to exist. I believe it's an existential question that relates to the nature of our consciousness and how that um, comes into this equation. So coming back to death, I, I believe we have used a word and labeled it as something to be fearful and that which is unknown in a way, that's why we, we fear it. But Socrates says actually in uh, his book, The Apology, where he's being executed, um, he says, who knows what death actually means? Maybe it's the answer to life and the mystery of our, uh, what we really experience. I mean, on a ph phenomenological level, this is just, uh, the human experience in itself is so unique. Like when you think about it, how matter can come together and form this complex species that has the ability to perceive reality and act and use language to communicate. I mean, it's just a bunch of sounds uh, that we make that that we're communicating with. So it's, it's this thing about how our consciousness, our language, our... Um, the way we perceive this thing, whatever we do, interact in this in this entire equation about life and death. And so what I'm trying to say is that maybe death, it does not have to be seen in a dark light. Like you said, it is the opposite of life. And we, we might tend to say this is like light and this is dark. Death is darkness. It's something to be feared. But again, Socrates says, maybe it's not and embraces that and says that I will stand for the truth regardless of... Uh, what you guys might think for. And if the answer to that is death, I am okay with it. Uh, maybe something else lies, maybe it's a better place. And I don't know whether that's that's true, but I'm also curious to know about what you guys think of life after death and whether there is actually, I mean, there's a lot of religion that have different theories about life after death, right? How uh, Hinduism says there's reincarnation, how Christianity says there's heaven or hell. This whole notion of the afterlife. I'm curious to know what you guys, your guys take on this is. Yeah, I think from my perspective, whether there's an afterlife or not, I think this is a harder question for maybe a modern, more contemporary generation to grasp with. I think primarily because of the rise of secularism and the rise of people being more... Um, a religious and religious themselves. So I think these answers of um, where do we 
derive morality from where do we where do where do where do we derive where do we go from like what are all these directions there's it's these are really hard questions and i think even nietzsche said god is dead and in one of his books and he was it was in directly with reference to what that would mean for the consequence that would bring for humanity like what does it mean for a society that has no um, moral uh, more no moral backing and i think even in dostoevsky's novel crime and punishment he says if there is no god then anything is permissible and i don't i don't know if i agree with that um i'm i'm a agnostic or atheist myself um, but in terms of where we go I, these are like very difficult questions and i think one point to note is that with these discussions we want to try and be as respectfully curious as them as possible and not be disingenuous or maybe painted in the light that may offend anyone that is watching um but i think these are really really hard questions um i don't know if i would have any unique or unique take on this i'd be interested to see maybe what you had to say about this us given that you've had someone that's been very dear to you um pass away and i think potentially um that's where we would find maybe uh, the closest answer or a answer closer to the truth because i also feel that without having some sort of experience of death it is hard to really grasp what that means um and i've had people close to me pass but it's been in a unique position where it's been at a distance and because of the way that we are when you have when you have some sort of emotional distance from people that have passed it's not the same as having like a close friend passed away. So I would like to ask you if you're comfortable with it, of course, um, what do you think about, about the afterlife, if there is an afterlife and all these sorts of questions. And if you have anything that you've thought about. Yeah, thank you. That was very, very well put. Um, uh, to answer your, uh, the first part of your question, you know, my, my thoughts of an afterlife. I grew up in a religious household, uh, a Sunni, Sunni Muslim household. Um, but uh, around high school, I, I began um, personally to challenge those ideas, at least on an internal level. You know, maybe not externally. You know, I might still pray in, in my house just to, you know, sort of project this outward, you know, visible appearance to my parents that I am still religious. But inside, I was certainly very conflicted. Um, but even then, even when I was young. The idea of heaven never compelled me. The idea of death, I'm sorry, of hell never compelled me either. Uh, so when I broke free from, from my, um, my religion, um, I, it's hard to describe, but um, I, I sort of just uh, I stopped thinking about religion altogether. It was maybe the natural reaction I had uh, you know, af after years of being, um, you know, told what is, what is the truth, you know, that this religion, you must believe it. So my, my, I guess my natural reaction was to simply stop thinking about religion altogether. And that lasted for a few years. I would say throughout the duration of my, my college time, I didn't really think about religion. You know, I toyed around with the idea of identifying myself as agnostic or atheist. And for a while, I think I landed on agnostic a little bit that brought me some sense of identity, but um, now I'm at a point where I am, you know, it's sort of like a dialectical swing. I was in the earlier stage of my life very much on one side, you know, believing in religion to whatever capacity, you know, I, it might not have been, might, might not have been a genuine belief, but I, I was believing in it to some degree um, or subscribing, you know, to its structure to some degree. Um, and then I experienced a period of my life where I, I you know, 
on that dialectic, so to speak, I swung to the other side and I, um, I just didn't think about religion much at all. And it didn't inform my life and it didn't inform my decisions. Um, so now I'm at this point where I've once again swung, swung uh, across the spectrum, and but I, but I'm, I'm, I've landed a, a little bit more in the in the middle, um, and and I feel and I feel now that um, I'm much more open to, to to entertaining ideas of of afterlife. How that might look like, I do not know. But um, in my own personal experience, I one time had this revelation. This was a this was a few months ago, actually. Um, I started thinking about I started thinking about sleep and what sleep is, and I came to the conclusion, tentative, very tentative conclusion, uh, and only in my life at least that sleep could be a representation of death. A mini death is what I likened it to. You know, when when we're asleep, our body is paralyzed. You know, we have at least in the deep stage of our sleep, we have no control over our bodies. Um, and uh, I, I wouldn't say we are not conscious, but we're less we're less conscious. Um, we we are we've entered a realm of of you know different consciousness that is not accessible to us in our waking lives. So I, I started thinking. Well, you know, I like to sleep. I think sleep is pretty comforting. It's a sort of surrender. It's a surrender to my to my uh, you know my physical world. I surrender my body. I surrender my mind, and I let I let go in a sense. Um, and so. When I came across that, you know, that thought in my mind, I felt immediately or more so comforted by the idea of death. Um, now, I'm not saying that that death is sleep and sleep is death, you know, but I'm saying that when I made this uh, connection or this parallel, it brought me a lot of comfort because it got me thinking what death might look like. Do we experience, you know, many deaths every day? Um, would 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 death, true death? Just be a longer, extended sleep. I, I don't know, but um, you know, to answer your question, that was a sort of a long preface to, you know, the the short and sweet answer, which is, do I believe there's an afterlife? I I, I definitely believe that our energy uh, transfers somewhere. You know, I don't believe that it um, it stays in the ground. I don't believe that it necessarily, you know, goes to heaven or to hell. But but uh, it, something happens to that energy. That, um, yeah, I'm very curious, though, you know, to, to hear what you both think about about death and, and afterlife. Joshua, I, I feel you, yeah. that you, you know, you've got you. I've got go. these things going. <laughs> yes, when you started talking about uh, sleep being a sort of death, and I, I've also been very intrigued about sleep. And I did some research on this, and I believe it is somewhere true that sleep is a small little death we have so and chemically that there is this uh, connection we can make when we die dmt is produced in our mind through the pineal gland when we die and when we are born these are the two times right this was discovered in uh, i think um, rick dr rick strassman's study and he spoke about how near-death experiences when people have they have this kind of dmt experience where they see their entire life and teleport to the other side, whatever that might mean. And uh, what it's, they said is that DMT in very small minuscules is melatonin, which is produced in our own minds. And there's shamans who actually um, 
do they practice or they are able to naturally release DM3 in their mind through extended periods of darkness. And the basic concept is somewhere that when there's darkness, there's melatonin that's produced in our mind. And when you keep extending that with certain diets and whatnot, um, that turns into 5-MeO, which eventually turns into DMT. And people enter these other states, these other dimensions. Now, I've not had personal experience uh, exactly getting there although I, i'd say I'm, i've been in like the space in between that liminal space from this one run to the other but the point coming back to sleep is that melatonin is that thing and so i i truly believe as well um, that every night when we're going to sleep somewhere we're surrendering and dying and every morning is again life coming back i mean um I, i'm not sure if religion speaks about this but uh, the sun is is it was a source of um, God or source of light or source of life that every day died, right? And when the sun set, that was death and there was no light and everyone lived in darkness and they surrendered and went to sleep. And next day, the sun saved them back again. So I think it's quite fascinating, this idea of surrendering and how that connects to religion because religion somewhere i believe is discipline you know you're following a regime you're following a guideline that someone has prescribed so that is religion but surrender on the other side is kind of the opposite and i Usa, i resonate with what you're saying that pendulum coming back to the center because i believe the balance between discipline and surrender or the space in between that is that state of flow that liminal space where things kind of get interesting where you're dancing between two sides. And I believe, I think we do that on a daily basis, like with sleep and waking up. Um, but yeah, I don't know what the implications of this would be. So I'm curious to know from you guys, what do you think? I just had a quick thought. I just wanted to challenge the idea quickly. Um, I, I First off, I would say like very interesting things, especially with the DMT being produced before and after death. Um, or at the point of birth and then at the point of death or near death. And also what you were saying, Us. Something I'm curious though is with things like dreaming and being in a dream state, surely that violates the the idea that being that sleeping is a is a mini death, right? Because when you're dreaming, that is in some sense Although, unless you're, I guess, a, um, a lucid dreamer, you don't really control that, but you're some, in some sense aware that you are dreaming, but in a very, maybe a, in a weird subconscious state. So if we are dreaming and we are aware of, that we are dreaming, maybe if we wake up, we realize we've had a dream. Doesn't that violate the idea that, um, that we are having mini deaths, so to speak, if we are sleeping? I, that's that's very, very, very interesting. I, I would say... I would say uh, on a on a maybe on an immediate level, yes, I think it would. But I think it would also um, raise the question: um, then what is death? I mean, uh, perhaps death does consist of dreaming, and we're simply not aware of that. Now, I might be way out of my realm, and I probably am to say that. But I I know there there are you know uh, real scholars and academics who 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 are much closer to maybe a complete understanding of death than I am. But but I don't know. I think I think. Uh, while I agree uh, with with uh, that challenge, I I'm, I'm myself I'm not sure. Um, I think it would I think it would require us to have at least some understanding of um, of what death looks like and feels like. And um, and and I I don't know I I don't think I've died. <laughs> Maybe you know except for for these mini deaths so to speak. But yeah. 
What do you, what do you think about that? Pushback, I guess. I, I think, yeah, I definitely, yeah, I, I think what you're saying, I, I agree with. So it, it, it brought up another point that I think we could go in this direction. I think it's maybe a bit too abstract, but the notion of death is not something the the notion of being scared of death is not something that is novel. I think, I think I've, I've heard this idea of death, the experience, what does it feel like? Where is it? It, It's a concept that's been tussled with and discussed. um, I've heard in the past and, and I suspect this is for many people, a big fear of theirs. Um, and this got me thinking into, obviously you were saying there's professionals, academics that probably study sleep, they study these effects, but is there a specific study of the, the, the death that we actually have? Like, is there a study of that, of that experience? And I would say that potentially this is maybe a weird, uh, a subsect of philosophy that is to be explored, like the philosophy of dying. And I know there is a few philosophers that do explore this in depth, but I think exploring that route in in terms of the future and where that and answering these questions it would be very interesting. I I often think that these answers are more spiritual and philosophical rather than than maybe cognitively rational or like scientific because sometimes there's just experiences that we have, um, no matter like how unreason uh, unreasonable or esoteric they may seem they appear to us as real they feel real every experience that we have of them is real and then this also comes to the to this interesting point of is what how do we know what we're experiencing is real because if what we experience in the everyday world is through our sensory organs but when we go to sleep and we dream and those dreams feel just as real as the present then what actually is real in that sense because if we're experiencing everything on that same dimension of that sensory dimensions of of feeling, of um, smelling. I, I don't know. I've not really smelled anything in my dreams, but I'm sure there's some some people that have had weird experiences. But um, like uh, an example I can use is uh, just a quick anecdote is I remember when I was younger, I was probably maybe 15 or 16. And I, I was in this dream where um, I was on this cliffside. I don't, I don't quite remember what the context was, but I just remember falling. And I remember my heartbeat like skyrocketed. And I remember hitting the ground in my dream and I went straight up, like upright in my bed and I felt my chest and my chest was like beating so fast. It was as if like you stood in front of a car and you thought you were about to die. It was that, that same sense of shock and, and um, that rush of like, is this, is this the end? Even though in the dream, it would like in real reality, it never would have happened. That feeling of this is the end was in some sense, it felt real. So, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent of between what is real and what isn't real. And, but that was just a comment, but if you had anything to comment, I'd be, I think this would be interesting. Uh, that, that was, you raised a very fascinating, um, I don't know, you, you know, what you said about, um, you know, in our dreams, are we, are we, what, it, what is real? You know, if we are experiencing, could we, uh, you know, label that as as being real. Well, I think I think that's kind of how I see death. I don't see death as non-life, and I'm not sure if this is a linguistic problem where life, um, you know, strictly defines one thing, but and death the opposite. But I, I think it's a continuum. I think life and death is a continuum, and I think that in death, whoever it is that is dead 
so to speak, is still experiencing it as real. Um, I think at least, at least the way I have been uh, raised by my family, uh, by my institutions, you know, by pop culture, I think my idea of death is one of black and white. Joshua, you were talking about that idea that, that, that life and, and death, that one is light, one is dark. Um, and while true, they might be different, uh, they, might, uh, they, might, they might appear different, we might perceive them differently. Um, I, don't, I, I think it, uh, it does a disservice to try and pit them against each other. You know, um, so again, again, you know, the way I was raised thinking about death in all corners of my life was that when you die, you cease to exist. When you die, blackness, blackness forever, eternal. It's this classical idea of death. I think that is where my fear was rooted in death. It was like this nothingness, this non-existence. And it, it very well could be that. I guess I would not know, none of us would know until we approach the point of death. But 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 to your point, Xavier, you know, I, I really like the distinction you made between you know, uh, real, uh, you know, what is real, what is unreal. And I, th I think that, um, I, th I think that for me, my dreams are real. I think they are very much um, intertwined with my reality. Um, it is what I perceive. Therefore, for me, it's real. Um, and I wouldn't see how I, I would, um, I don't know. Anyway, that's, yeah. I, I'd like to me. add to some things to this three, three thoughts that came to my mind. One is that this idea of things being real and not real, I think um, I question as well, because again, going back to that study on DMT, the spirit molecule, there was a documentary after this by Rick Strassman, uh, the experiment where they gave ayahuasca to these patients in a clinical study, that the impact of that they found was way more profound than what they had imagined. Right, and it raised some really interesting questions because the participants said that what they experienced was real, where science would say that that was just a bunch of hallucinations and that's not real. But these people said, well, it was more real than real, so I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's impacted me. It's one of the most profound experiences I've had. Uh, just saying that it's not real does not actually mean it's not real. It's changed me as a person. So I find that very interesting. and how the study said that we think consciousness is generated in the brain, but they, they concluded that we know less about consciousness than we think we do. We think it's in the brain, but they say the brain is a small part of the equation, kind of like a radio transmitter, where the radio transmitter is not the brain. The brain is something else. The radio transmitter is just that which synchronizes with that frequency. And so some, the brain might be something like that, but consciousness is not actually generated in the mind. That's what they came up with. Now, the other point that I wanted to make that connects to this, Usama, you said life and death uh, as black and white, but I see, I don't know if this is what you meant, so I'd, I'd be curious to know what you, what you did, but I see this black and white not as dual, but non-dual. It's like the, these are two sides of the same coin. And so it goes back to the philosophy of Taoism that talks about yin and yang and life implies death and death implies li life with, with like nothingness is just the absence of something and something implies nothing and nothing implies something as the same as life implies death and death implies life. Um, and then the third thing that came to my mind is a more pragmatic or more scientific way that I make sense of this is uh, in physics, I think this was one of the laws 
of thermo, not thermodynamics, I forget what it is, but it, essentially energy cannot be created or destroyed. It is just transferred. So I believe we are also a form of energy that get transferred. And what happens when that transference happens, when we pass is um, some form of greater metamorphosis, I would say. And my take is not to see death as something negative because it is what gives meaning to life in a way. If we were eternal beings, then uh, I don't know, life would not be so meaningful. And that's, sorry, one last point. That's interesting because I, I feel it's ironic because my name actually means eternal in Sanskrit. And the idea of utopia that, that this whole podcast is about also is about this eternality, this, this thing that's infinite and that which is beyond. And we're getting closer and closer towards it, but never really there. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't know, just a bunch of thoughts. I'm curious to know what you guys make of it. Uh, just to quickly respond to your, to your second uh, point, Joshua, um, to clarify, I guess, my position on, um, you know, how I view life and death. I, I view them, I view it in the same way as you. Um, since the death of my friend, um, rather, it's a clear, you know, definitive point in my life where before my friend died, I had this uh, dreadful fear of death, of not wanting to die. It, it, it kept me up at night, you know, how, how much it terrified me. Um, and then after he died, it was almost like um, that that idea or maybe that illusion began to wither away. And I no longer felt the same fear of death. Now, I do fear perhaps dying slowly or in pain. I mean, Shashua, we were talking about this a few days ago, you know, what does dying slowly like look like? I mean, aren't we already dying slowly the moment that we've entered life? We, in, in a sense, you know, you could say we're dying slowly, but I guess I mean that a lot more uh, you know, uh, technically, you know, let's say I'm being tortured and I know death is imminent. And while the idea of death itself may not terrify me, uh, the idea of being mutilated or the idea of being harmed before that death is, is, is what I think scares me a little bit, a little bit more, but, um, but, but yeah, yeah, Shashwood, you know, I, I really do think that there are two sides of the, of the same coin. Um, and you said it well. What would life look like without death? Life would be eternal. Would have no endpoint. It would be. It would be parody. You know, there would be. Um, it's just impossible for me. It's impossible to imagine um, life without death, right? I just had a thought as well. I mean, this may be a digression, so maybe you may want to jump in a because I may um I may steer the ship elsewhere. But I had a thought. There was a Stoic philosopher, I forget his name. Um, he, he had a he he was obviously I'm sure, I don't know what the mortality rate of of kids were back then, but I'm sure it was very high. Um, one of his sons passed away, and when he was asked about the passing of his son, um, he his reply was, "I knew he was not immortal," um, which is a very how would you describe it? I mean, blunt is one way to put it, but I think it's a very honest reflection on, on the, the, the transient nature of human life. And to me, how I see this is that uh, the impact that, that fear has over us, specifically over death, especially over death, is that it's often our position that we hold that determines the level of fear that we hold. 
Um, and th- this, this is a position I've taken in, in other parts, not specifically to death. But what I mean by this is that, and I'd be interested to see what you think, Usman, because I think this is a, a direct, um, this may apply directly to you and anyone that has had someone close to them pass. I often see when, when someone passed away, how I often perceive it, and like I said, because I've not had this experience, it's very hard to hard to say, but I often think that it may be this element of needing to surrender to to the condition of life, which is everything is transient and that it's kind of like an S-curve. Things die and then they're reborn and they die and they're reborn and is potentially the fear that we have, much like I think the Stoics recognize, is that a resistance to what nature is would this would this fear be would this fear be resolved if we were to surrender to the the conditions that life is and that's just i i don't know this is just a hypothesis i'm just very curious Um, i think i think that's a fascinating hypothesis i mean i don't know if that was directly directed towards me or charge as well but i would i would just quickly say to that um, yes, my immediate answer to that would be would be yes, in a sense. I mean, you, you think about you think about you know so many aspects of, of, of modern life, of modern society. A lot of these um, aspects are designed to uh, grant us longevity, to to bring our individual lives further and further into time. Um, and when I was younger, I. I thought that was truly, you know, what life was, was um, how it was meant to be lived, you know, lived long, lived well, full of experience. And while I, I don't think that's um, that's something I don't want to do, you know, I do, I think I am interested in living a long life. I think it would be interesting. I think it would be interesting to say, wow, I'm 101. Holy shit. You know, like that would be cool. Um, but, at, but at the same time, it's like, we look at, you know, we, we look at all the systems in place, our healthcare systems, our education systems, and even, even our response, some of our response to global, to global warming and climate change, you know, it's, I think it's rooted, um, in a, in an overarching fear of death. It might be so distant. It might be so subconscious that we don't immediately recognize it, but I think driving us, driving every action in our life, um, is a desire to, to extend our lives. Now, I don't know, and I'm curious to hear what you both think. I don't know if that desire to extend our lives can or should be conflated with um, a desire to avoid death. Perhaps they're not the same thing. Um, I don't know if, if I'm making sense, you know. Perhaps wanting to live longer does not necessarily mean that uh, you want to avoid death. Um, but, in, in, but in any case, um, uh, Xavier, to, to your point, I feel, I feel, yes, that fear uh, it, it's been propagated by religion, um, you know. Uh, I think I think that's one of the bigger vehicles of of of, uh, of that. You know, um, do good in your life. I think I don't know. I guess I guess I don't know. Shash, what what do you think? So one thought that came to my mind, which is the question you asked, where does religion start and end? A thought is that I think it starts at death. 
which is what you we brought up right it's this fear that we have it's like this unknown because it's like somewhere we're saying that death is one of the great not i don't know is this what we're saying death is one of the greatest mysteries or unknowns which is what makes us kind of fear it and that's why we go somewhere to religion that's the beginning of religion and then we see histories of how religions kind of um I don't know, maybe I should not go into what they do, but I think we all know what happens when religion turns a little bit toxic and politics and religion come together. Um, but that being said, this idea of surrender, I, I wanna go back to that because I believe that surrendering to that fear that we where religion starts is the answer. I mean, Joseph Campbell says that, um, the cave you fear entering holds the treasure you seek. And that cave, that, that dark cave that we're looking at, that we fear or that we're told or conditioned to fear, which is death, might be the answer to life. I mean, this mystery of just our consciousness and this reality of what is real, I, I believe that somewhere death could be the answer to, to life and uh, the mysteries of life might come alive when we die. Um, but yet, I, even aside from just like eternal death, the idea of mini deaths is something I'm quite fascinated by. And I think that is somewhere the solution to the existential dread of dying. Um, because I believe that the mini deaths or ritualized surrenders, that's what a lot of uh, shamans or uh, just ancient traditions practice, this place where you can just be vulnerable and cry and get rid of all that negative energy, that ritualized surrender. And um, I know they have this at Burning Man and other spaces like that, these sacred spaces where people just be 100% vulnerable um, and just let go of whatever they've been holding on to. That actually, I believe, allows people to see more, uh, see more light in life and not fear death and come to terms with death. Um, a last thought is that I also know there was uh, psilocybin studies that were conducted where patients who knew they were going to die because of diseases took this one small dose of regulated psilocybin mushrooms and they were able to overcome the fear of death and uh, deal with that. So what I'm saying is, I guess, death does not have to be feared or for at least for me, I, I, do, I would not like to fear death. And instead of fearing whatever I fear, rather surrender to that and kind of enter the cave that I fear um, to see what's on the other side and, and kind of uh, come more in terms of what life really is and that mystery and embrace that. So that's my take. A thought I had, which is another digression, which is also related to a Stoic philosopher. I think you may be seeing a trend here. Um, to bring it back to Marcus Aurelius, I'm not too sure how familiar you are, you guys are with him. Um, for anyone that is watching that is unaware, he was a Roman emperor, and I would highly encourage you to do a lot of, uh, to do readings in him because at first glance, when you read all these like um, these uh, men or women that are considered to be great, because we're so far removed from the context to which that was that was uh that was back then it is really hard to grasp the gravity or, or the importance or um yeah i guess the gravity of how valuable or how um 
progressive or, you know, of that work. So I'm referring to his meditations. And um, he had this quote, which relates to death, I think. And, and also it relates to legacy and maybe what it means to really be living. He says, I want to make sure I don't misquote it. He says something along the lines of soon you will have forgotten everything and soon all will have forgotten of you, which I think is a, I think is one of the most profound quotes I've ever read because it, it asks, I think it asks two questions. First, I think it asks very bluntly, how are you living your life? And then it also asks a second question, which is what are you living it for? Because I think there's also, I, I, in my personal experience, when you ask people what their reasons for doing things, I think there, there may be a lack of, maybe this is my more objective sense coming in, but I think there may be a lack of um, logical consistency or maybe and not a lot of thought put into things. And that also applies to myself because obviously not everything is based on reason. Um, but it also, what I'm more interested to hear from, from you two about is, um, this idea of everything forgetting you, there may be a point in a hundred years or maybe 50 years or, uh, 200 years where every remnant of yourself will be forgotten. Everything will be gone potentially depending, I don't know, unless one of you become incredibly famous writers that live the live until the next millennium. Um, uh, I, I was just curious to get your thoughts on this. Um, I, I often see this is also, it can arouse a lot of existential thought or dread. <laughs> um, but in some sense, I see this as an incredibly optimistic quote. Um, I, I'm very curious to hear what you two thought in relation to death on this quote. Yeah. Um, that's a very, another very interesting take, Xavier. I think, and, and thank you for sharing that quote. I had not heard it before and I jotted it down because it really, it's a, it's a good one. Yes, um, thought provoking. I wanted to, I wanted to maybe respond uh, with, a, with a challenge to that, to that idea of of, of, um, of us being forgotten. I think, um, and, and please just jump in if you feel I've misconstrued, misconstrued what you've said, but I think that in the, in, the, in the way that you are using the word forgotten, I would agree, maybe forgotten on a superficial level. Like my name is forgotten, who I was is forgotten, where I lived, where I went to school, the way I used to look, my photos, my image, it's gone. You know, humanity has moved past me in that regard. Um, however, I think if I were to, and you might agree with this uh, portion of it, but if we were to dive a little bit deeper, I don't think that nothing, um, anything in this life is ever truly forgotten. I feel there is some sort of natural network of memory, you know, binding all of life together, um, informing its next move or the universe's next move. And I think that, you know, when the three of us are gone from this maybe physical realm, um, and our superficial artifacts are forgotten. I don't think that um, what we what we what we uh, expressed in this life, what we gave to this life, what we took from this life, will be forgotten. I think to your point, Shashwat, about transference, about you know, energy is neither uh, created nor destroyed, or cannot be created nor destroyed. I think it's a continuation always, and and so. Um, Yes, I, th I think that we, we, we might be forgotten on a, on a more superficial level. And 
I could really care less, you know, uh, there are far too many of us, um, in my opinion, for, for just a select few to be remembered. I think it does us a disservice um, to elevate a select few, um, because that also calls into the question, you know, what are our criteria for elevation? Why, why are certain people famous? You know, why did we as a society elect to uh, make those people famous? Because fame is a two-way street, you know? Um, but before I, I digress too much, um, I don't know. I would like to hear what you think. What you think about that, Xavier and Shash? I think it's a very interesting thing, though. You know, the idea of of memory and how that relates to life and death. So I'd like to respond to that with two things. First, the idea of wanting to freeze the self or eternalize the self or be remembered. Right. Um, I feel like when I talk to a lot of people and ask what why are they doing what they're doing. And uh, where is this going? They say, we want to create a legacy, leave something back, something that people will remember me for, right? Like that's where somewhere we derive meaning for life and what we're, whatever we're doing, like every day, whatever we do, we want to justify it. We want to say that this meant something, right? And that's where we get these senses of motivations and whatnot. But aside from that, I mean, does that, do we really need that legacy or that, uh sort of meaning that like oh there is an eternal meaning to life and uh that i'm trying to search for and and seek my take on this is that legacy on one side can be a great illusion that one can create but somewhere it disrupts the idea of change because it's trying to freeze something and not allow that to change and going back to your point uh usama you said um how it's it relates to uh, we don't want to accept nature and how nature is destructive in a sense. Entropy is real and we are not that safe as we think we are. I mean, life, I mean, death or forces of nature will get over us and we will be forgotten. But does that mean that we should not have something to wake up for? Does that mean that it leaves one in an existential dread or uh, a sense of negative nihilism? For me, my take is that it actually adds optimism to my life, which is, or, or the sense of relief. This is where the idea of soft nihilism comes in, where just because in this vast scope of the universe, we're nothing and we mean nothing, I think that's liberating. I, I think that I don't need to succumb to my circumstances or think that this is how life should be lived. I mean, I, I believe that's a sense of freedom for me where I can just be whoever I want. I mean, it doesn't mean anything anyway. So why not just have fun? Why not just be more of a child and um, just flow with nature, I guess, instead of trying to fight it and try to fight death and uh, succumb to the right path of living a long life and whatnot. I mean, it's built into us, survival, uh, which is something I don't understand. What is this need to survive? That's a whole other question. But my take is kind of this optimistic, nihilistic take, which is that I don't care if I'm forgotten. Sure, if I'm remembered, great. But even if, I, if I'm forgotten, that means I, I can just do whatever I want. So that's one. The second is, this is the, might be completely uh, a digression, but does technology in that way enable us to freeze us? What this podcast is, we're freezing our experience in time and we're eternalizing it it's somewhere going to be on the internet i mean we people i mean we might not exist but this content might be on this on this internet and uh somewhere someone might find it thousands of years down the line who knows i don't know that's one of the other unknowns as well and um if you guys have any have any thoughts at any point about this question i'd be curious to know but 
here are two big thoughts, I guess, if that made sense. Yeah, I, I, you may have saw my face light up in the legacy um, discussion because it just like led to like all these like it was the hi- the hydro head was cut off and it led to like four other heads. So one thing that I don't know. Oh god, go for it, man. So okay, 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 no. Yeah. So what? I was I was just trying to think what to talk. Okay, so I think. Yeah, so in the discussion of legacy, asking is wanting to be remembered a good thing or not a good thing. The first thought that came to my mind was thinking of people that are what 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 I would conceive as great people. So two thought two people came to my mind. One, Marcus Aurelius, um, and the reason was because Marcus Aurelius's meditations were actually a personal journal. So all of his meditations all of his writings was actually his own points that he was writing for himself he had no intention of writing those for other people and even though he was an emperor so in some sense he had his legacy written in paper i guess for him one of his greatest works which was not in what did not want to be his legacy ended up being revered as one of the greatest um, books um till today so that's one thing i thought and i also thought of buddha so if I'm not mistaken, maybe um, both of you can uh, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Buddha um, on, I think his dying wishes or something along the lines was he did not want to be idolized. Um, even though he was the first to, to reach enlightenment, one of his wishes was that he did not in, at all want to be an idol. And this, this really strikes me as very strange because if you would ask a normal everyday person, everyday layman, what do you want your legacy to be? I think everyone would have an answer, even if it was a good answer or a bad answer. Everyone would be like, well, yes, um, I want to be president one day or I don't know, something like that. Like either way, everyone has some sort of answer. But for these two great men, and I'm sure there's many other men and women that are equally as great that had similar takes, they did not want to leave a legacy in the same way. They actually said, please don't revere me. And yeah this that was the first thought i had and then the second thought i had in terms of legacy was um emmanuel kant i believe so he has these two uh there were these two ideas so there's motivations of no motivations of duty and motivation of inclinations so there's motivation of inclinations essentially to give a bit of a summary is things that you do um you're motivated by preference you're motivated by desire you're motivated by um things that you prefer so like if you're eating an ice cream you're using your motivations of inclination to decide what ice cream to choose right because you're choosing you basing that based on your desire whereas motivations of duty strike this really interesting um opposite which is why are you doing the reasons you're doing what duty is it for so I guess this it asks the question, what is the purpose of your life? And is this in service to your purpose? So it's kind of theological. Um, and when I thought of legacy, um, when I thought of legacy of people asking, um, it, it, asking people if they want to do a legacy, is it for like some sort of self-interested reason? Is there some sort of ego involved? I would, I would think that from my readings of Kant, even though they're quite limited i would think kant would disagree with that notion he would say well your duties of inclination 
want you to have a legacy for your own purpose, for your own ego. But your motivations are duty are not to fulfill that. It is rather to fulfill your own duty. So it's actually, you should not have a legacy for the sake of being remembered. You should have a legacy for being great or to fulfill your duty. So I, I kind of see, I don't know if that makes sense. It was a bit convoluted, but that was sort of the first thought I had. Uh, the, the two thoughts I had in relation to legacy. And then, uh, yeah, in regards to technology, maybe we can go on that end, but any comments or thoughts? I would quickly like to share something. I You trigger when you said, Buddha said he didn't want to be remembered. Just a funny meme came to my mind and you said he was the first one to be enlightened. And you said, how do we reach enlightenment? And I just find that quite funny. And I'd like to share a quick meme with you. I don't know if this might connect to any of what you said, but I think it's quite funny. And I there is some, some uh, truth in it. So can you guys see it? Yeah, so we can see it. <laughs> I like the, I like the good meme. Nine, nine out of ten. That is a good meme. But the point is that we try to get to some place, but the point is that it's not a place to get to. I this this was super side thing, but yeah, I'm I'm cu curious to know some of what uh, your take is on legacy and what Xavier mentioned. Uh, yeah, um, just let me quickly review my notes on that um, because that that's I don't know throughout throughout what both of you were saying I was trying to. Uh, link um, idea of legacy and of death, mm -hmm. you know, and try to, trying to understand in, in what ways they are related. I mean, um, the legacy comes, the need for legacy comes because there is this thing called death, because we will mm -hmm. cease to exist. So we want to mm -hmm. freeze ourselves. We want to leave something behind before we transition from life to death. That's how I see legacy. It's whatever we've experienced, we want to freeze it and leave it behind for it to be valued so that uh, there's something to leave behind before we pass. And that, in some sense, uh, is meant to bring meaning to us or, or, or what Xavier said, maybe as markers or really, oh no, who did you quote? I forget. But uh, the other take is um, to derive it as a way to live a better life or live a virtuous life or live a life that's motivated by truth rather than power or honor or uh, greed or, or I don't know, it could go down that drain. But the point is that it, it could be seen in many different ways. So what's your take? You know, yeah, you know, when, when, when we speak about legacy, I think of the body, uh, you know, the human body. Uh, most immediately, you know, we might take a look at the body and say it's limited. You know, it could only run so much before tiring. It can, it can only swim so much before gasping for air you know it can only jump so much it can only eat so much you can only whatever it's limited um or it take only take so much pain you know before the system of the body collapses in, in whatever way and so i think about legacy now you both have given me this this word that i had not really thrown around in my head before but you know how how do how do bodies body rather the body and legacy relate. And um, 
I actually I'm very interested by the body and you know what how it's been represented in the in 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 our current culture and and in in our past as a species. Um, and I don't know. I think that technology um, it's not exactly linear what I'm about to say, but I think that technology in a lot of ways um, is an extension of our body. Um, but as an extension of our body. Um, it's, uh, it's paradoxical because as an extension of our body, it's, uh, it's in a sense um, obsoleting or making obsolete our body. You know, we look at inventions like the car, you know, the car uh, is a substitute for walking. Now we don't have to walk a thousand miles. Instead, we can drive. Now we don't even have to walk 10 minutes. We can drive. Our feet in that regard, you know, uh, are, are, are compartmentalized and 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 in a sense useless. And I feel our body becomes more and more useless with every passing year. You know, like Shashwa, to your point about uh, our our social profiles online. You know, we can be anybody we want online, regardless of our body state. We could be we could be in a sickly state. You know, we could be on our on our deathbed, but we could be online and completely alive and well. Um, you know, you look at you look at music, for example. I think long time ago we used to make music with our bodies. We used the music came from our throats, the music came from our hands, hitting on drums and such. And now music has been sort of it's been digitized. You know, first it was analog, first it was stamped onto to vinyls, and and, and now it's it's contained in, in bits, you know, it's in an MP3 file. Um, and so I, I I only share these examples because I think there there is a, an interesting link between between body and legacy. And because I think as a species, we've recognized, and we've also reached a point where in our, in our collective consciousness, we've reached a point where, where we have the technological capacity to move beyond our bodies, to take our life, which is once limited by this structure, this very structure, and to, and to expand it you know, into a completely new world into the world of virtual reality. I mean, I see, I don't, necess I, I don't necessarily agree or disagree with this being the way forward, but it does seem that our society is trending in that way. And so just to quickly summarize what I, 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 I was saying, I think that legacy um, is, a, is a, perhaps a direct opposition to uh, the body's limitations. Um, it's a tentative theory, you know, feel free to, uh, to challenge it, but um, I, I feel like, um, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you I, think? I'd like to respond because so many light bulbs went off. Yes. Right? We're trying to connect legacy, so bodies, much. and technology. And I brought up this yes. idea of how technology somewhere is freezing us. And you said yes. something very interesting. You said technology is an extension of our bodies, right? And um, actually, there are these two Australian philosophers who, Andy Clark and, uh, sorry, and Andy Clark and David Chalmers. Yes, these two guys. And they speak about this, about how technology is extension of our bodies and our human mind. And it's not something to be feared or thought of as separate. I mean, Kevin Kelly speaks about this uh, and how he says technology is the seventh kingdom of nature. It is the technium, he calls it, and it is a part of us. So on one hand, there is this idea of how technology is a, a, is a way that we exteriorize our mind and how um, we transcend our limitations of our body and, and, and the human condition. Um, and it could be seen as some sort of utopia. 
But on the other hand, I watched this Black Mirror episode called San Junipero. San Junipero. I'm not sure if you guys have watched this, but it's a very interesting episode. I watched it for my class and it's actually one of those episodes that's not so dark. It seems quite interesting. It's like, is this a utopia or dystopia? Because let me, let me, so Xavier, have you seen it? Because it looks like Usama has seen it. I've seen one Black Mirror episode. It was okay, like so about it's, this it's, Apple rating system. So I don't, I don't know. And Usama, have you seen it? Okay, so I'm going to give a quick summary of what San Junipero is, and I, I'd be interested to see what you guys take your your take on is with legacy bodies and technology and utopias. Uh, so basically, in San Junipero, San Junipero is this life or this reality which is kind of like a, a dreamland city where you have no restrictions. It's a free place. And it's a virtual reality, essentially, which feels more real than real. And people from life, from this reality, can go visit it uh, for some time uh, and experience it and come back. And then once they die on this planet, on this reality, they can choose to go there forever. They can choose to freeze themselves in that reality and live like a very happy, wonderful life. And it's I'm not going to give you the details, but that's the... Uh, the kind of societies they're talking about or the realities they're talking about. So on one hand, there's like how technology is the way we exteriorize our mind is a form of art. It's a form of how we transcend our limitations. But on the other side, it could be seen in some dystopian ways that Black Mirror shows of how um, the way we differentiate reality and virtual reality might completely change and we might get encroached into this weird matrix, right? So I'm curious to know where you guys stand to connect this idea of legacy, bodies, technology, and then utopias and dystopias. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, we can only attempt to write, let's try and give this a go. Um, so the idea of technology and technology and its increasing development in the modern world and how it affects our direct how we how we how we interact with the world i think is super interesting and when you mention or you were mentioning how you see the link between legacy and body as um the legacy being the increasingly uh making the body obsolete increasingly by our advancements in technology and this brought me to a point which it was we, it was discussed in the previous um episode um there was this idea this idea came to mind which is what is the purpose of is is the purpose now of human nature in the next 100 years maybe 200 years is the, is the purpose of human nature to increasingly give up human agency for the sake of technology? Is it surrendering to technology for it to take over our, our bodies, to take over our minds potentially, to take over every single part? And basically we're giving up our capacity of being human in some sense because like you said, Usman, it, first it was the car, um, and now with artificial intelli intelligence, it's in some sense the mind. Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done. But and then like you mentioned, Shasha, with the Black Mirror episode, it's a literal reality. We can now in that episode, it was choosing which reality to live. Is it to die or is it to go and live in a, in a virtual space where you can be forever? In terms of how this ties to utopia, hmm, I may have to think about that. But I, 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 it was more so a quick comment. I just think that 
as we progress, this question of is the point of human existence now alongside technology? Is it going to be the the surrendering to technology and giving up our own agency as humans to technology for it to be a part of us? Um, yeah, that, that was my comment on that. What about you? Or sorry, very, very, yeah, very interesting. I just quickly wanted to, to, to jump in, Xavier, and ask you um, mm -hmm. uh, how your last point relates to death. You know, I guess that's how we started or to, mm -hmm. to, to unknown that you, you, you laid it out really nicely. Like I was able to envision it, you know, and we yeah. talked a little bit earlier in this in this session about surrender. So what, what does that mean to you, you know, and how would you incorporate death in, into this, into what you were just saying? That's a really hard question, I think. Yeah. Let me th so how does death fall into my conception of giving up human agency for technology? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Or even, you know, yeah. how, how, does, how, how are we maybe attempting to manipulate or reshape the idea of death or, yeah. or as a species or, or how does technology sort of uh, aid or 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 not in in that endeavor. Yeah. So I'd like to also connect this to San Junipero, San Junipero, where this is where death came in, right? Like there's this existential dread of uh, dying. So they created this virtual reality where they simulate your consciousness and upload you to that, that virtual reality, that simulated reality. And it co connects back to the same question uh, that Usas is that how does um, death play a role um, or, or could take, correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhere the question is that, could technology play that role in changing the way we see death and the unknown and transcend our boundaries? Or did I completely butcher that? <laughs> so oh. the question, uh, sorry, sorry to jump in. I, I write the question down roughly. Let me know if this is a, a correct conception. So how does death play a role in how technology makes us increasingly obsolete? That could be that could be one angle from it. Like I, I, I yeah. want to reiterate, I had no specific maybe end goal in mind. Just how would yeah. we in, yeah. try to incorporate you know death into this conversation? Sort of going back to the to where we began, mm. um, because yeah. we've been yeah. Go ahead. So, there's this quote by Kierkegaard. Um, he's an existentialist. I'm pretty sure, maybe, um, and he says, "To philosophize is to learn to die." And how I see death and technology and how that increase, how technology is going to make us increasingly obsolete and how we're surrendering to technology and how that relates to maybe surrendering to death. How I see this is, this is maybe an idea, my utopian idea is that I think it requires us to have a better education on how to live. And to do that, we need to study philosophy because we need to ask these big questions. When do we give up? or maybe not give up, how do we surrender to, to life? How do we surrender to what is? How do we to surrender to the present? And I think when we are posed with questions of death, even though the, the, even though they're one of the, some of the most difficult questions, because there's, in some sense, there's no way of really knowing until you are death. And then there's no way of really receiving that information because who, who has parted this earth is no, no longer reachable, right? So in some sense, it's an unanswerable question. 
and in some ways, technology is sort of similar because we can't really see the trajectory of technology. I mean, in some sense, we could, we know where things are going, but we do not know what the end point is. AI going to end up in Skynet 2.0? Like, we don't really know, right? Like, we can only kind of um, make a linear projection, to use Alex's word. Um, so I, I think, for me, I think this answer of surrender and death and technology and even utopia I think maybe how it all connects is learning how to to be good philosophers, um, and how to really question how to how to live. I don't know. I don't know if that really answers any questions or not. This is more of a a personal take, but yeah, that's 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 my conception of that answer. I absolutely love that, man. Because somewhere I saw the connections between everything you were saying as uh, reflections on everything we've discussed today. And I would also like to share a quote that came to my mind in terms of where we started, which is what is the greatest unknown to mankind um, and how that connects to fear and death and then technology and how that might come in and surrender and how um, we, we, again, coming back to what we were, where we just are, are right now, the quote is, I know what I know, I know what I don't know, and then I don't know what I don't know. And that big thing, I don't know what I don't know, I believe connects to everything we've said and relates to that, that notion of death where it falls into that which I don't know that I don't know. And so philosophy, again, I, I, I agree with you, Xavier, comes in here, which is to recognize that how much we don't know that we don't know and come into this um, pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and truth and uh, somewhere using this gift that, man, uh, that that nature has given us of curiosity, of wanting to know more. I mean, I see philosophy as just an exploration of, of curiosity and the human mind and this, this experience we're having. Um, and so, again, I don't know whether this is a utopia or dystopia, but somewhere I feel like the answers are in the middle and the pursuit of, of what that means is what uh, is that which adds meaning to my life and how I reconcile with life and death and all these existential dreads. Um, and yeah, that, that's my take on this. Osama, I'm curious to know what are your uh, reflections on how these things connect. And, and just to jump in really quickly as well, if you disagree with, um, with my point about how we have to be maybe philo better philosophers to grapple up with these questions. I'd love for you to challenge me in case you had a different view, because like I said, um, death as an experience is something that's very unique and very profound and really depends on the experiences that you've had. So I would be interested to see what, what you have to say and any other comments along that line. Yeah, certainly. Um, I appreciate you always coming back to that point, you know, and acknowledging that uh, I guess, um, everyone's experience is different. You know, continually acknowledging that throughout the call. That's very much, very much appreciated. Um, uh, I, I don't, I don't know where to start now. I'm not sure. Um, so wherever uh, you I'll, feel like, I'll just and connect. Yeah, I'll just see what arises. Yeah, I just, uh, I guess I'll just dive right in. I had a few things written down throughout. Um, I don't know. I'm. I, um, I guess uh, I'm hesitant to. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not sure how to express this. Though. Um, 
if you can't do it, if you can't do it eloquently, feel free to do it very badly because that's, <laughs> what, that's what I, that's what I, that's something I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah. To let it out in the raw. I feel you. Yeah. And maybe, um, as a bad presentation. Um, you were, you were muted for about like five seconds. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah no, yeah. I was just saying potentially the word bad has a bad connotation, which is slightly mm. ironic. But, no yeah but i understand <laughs> what you mean uh, it's 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 um yeah i think that's an interesting topic in and of itself you know the idea of wanting to control or to curtail our speech in a certain way you know, to control the, the message that we communicate absolutely i think yeah i don't want to get too derailed but uh to get back onto the uh, onto the topic of death and, and unknown and, and how fear plays into it um i i can't remember precisely what what um uh, the both of you just said now a minute ago or two, but it's in my head. Um, and one thing I wanted to respond to in general, um, you know, after after my after my friend died, I I felt myself um, like I said a little bit earlier that I that that idea of um, of death scaring me so, sort of had had less of an impact had less of an impact on me, and I began to live my life a lot more hedonistically, you know, pursuing pleasure whenever, whenever I possibly could. Um, of course, that had a limit. And I, I ended up harming myself um, in that pursuit of extreme pleasure a few years ago. And, and so, and, and I, to this day, I struggle with the, um, the, uh, the ramifications of of that particular event in my life, uh, where I harmed myself, uh, and 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 uh, you know, I I constantly oscillate between. <laughs> it's really funny. I'm curious. I, I'm gonna. I guess I'll share it. I mean, I'm curious to hear what you think. But you know, I often engage in you know really contradictory behavior. Like I'll I'll smoke cigarettes and I'll run. You know. Or I'll play soccer and then, or football uh, in your case, Xavier, and and I'll and I'll and I'll and then I'll smoke after, you know. And I don't know why I, I do this. Um, and there are periods of times where I'm solely engaging in, I guess, um, this more purely hedonistic behavior, you know, this pleasure-seeking behavior. And there are other times when, again, I swing back to that idea of wanting to sustain my life, to run, to exercise, to you know, uh, decrease my heart rate, you know, to improve my lung capacity. And then there are other times where I'm just like, well, you know what, that stuff's not very fun. I mean, it feels good. It feels amazing. Don't get me wrong, you know, but it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not very fun. And, 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 and I, and, you know, there's certain pleasures to tobacco or to good, to good beer, or to good wine that, that, that I feel you miss out on if, if you're just on that. And, and this is, by the way, I mean, I'm, I'm not judging anyone at all for whatever they choose to do or consume, you know, or to put into their body. But I think, I think it relates to death a lot because when I'm smoking, I literally think, you know, every puff I take inches me that much closer to death. It's an accelerator of sorts, but, but, but does it, does it, does it, does it, does it incite me to stop? Sometimes no. Sometimes right now I'm actually in the period of my life where I'm smoking a lot more, you know, I, I, I just sort of emerged from this period of my life a few months before um, and leading up to maybe a week ago where I was, uh, I had, you know, I had dropped cigarettes for my life um, and was just focusing on taking care of my body. And now I'm, I'm back, I guess I'm back. And, and, and this is not anything new. This, this pattern 
maybe it's not just within me, it's within all of us, but, um, but it's definitely this, this constant oscillation, this constant teeter-totter you know, of life, of death, of life, of death, um, and just in, in, in cope, coping with that badly. You, you said something earlier, Xavier, you know, you know, you know how do we, um, when you were talking about uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, how do we, uh, how do we choose to, I'm not sure how, exactly how you said it, but how do we want to live our lives? You know, how do we choose to live our lives? Um, you know, do we live our lives constantly thinking about death? How does that then you know, impact our day-to-day -day decisions? You know, do we never leave the house because we're, we're so terrified? Uh, because every step that we take in this life proposes a risk. You know, we assume risk the moment we leave our house. Or, or you know, do we choose to live our lives on the complete opposite side of the spectrum? You know, just partying every day, just getting hammered, you know, going to the bottom, you know, of our in deep, deep corners of our mind. It's, it's a, it's a question that I, Joshua and I met, you know, about a week ago and I was struggling with the same thought. So he, he he's probably seen this before, but, uh, you know, these are my sort of, uh, you know, remarks, I guess. One line that came shouting to me about this whole oscillation between life and death is that which kills us makes us feel more alive. And that's where we get these notions of adventure sports or pushing the boundaries of human capacity, taking that risk, that, that which makes us feel this adrenaline rush, right? That uh, being able to face nature or face this, this thing that scares us, but also makes us feel alive. So uh, to me, the answer to that, or at least how I reconcile with uh, life and death and whatever else might lie in between is to somewhere come in the space that brings balance between the both. I wouldn't want to live a life that where I'm completely abusing my body and uh, just going ham. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to live such a con conservative life where I'm just uh, stuck and fearful to go out because I might die. I guess the answer for me and I guess for you guys as well, somewhere comes down to finding that balance. And it goes back to notions of the yin and yang, this and that that we always speak about. So I'm going to uh, shut up right there. Yeah. Um, I mean, first off, like, congrats on um, on quitting Osama for that brief period of time. I, I, I know I have a lot of friends that smoke, and I know it's extremely difficult, as with a lot of addictions, right? Like, I can't go a day without eating chocolate. Like, I mean, obviously, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to compare the things. I, I just, I, I understand um, the difficulty. Um, Yeah, like th this this idea that you had of oscillations between like, um, I guess, for example, to use your words, like smoking and then maybe doing doing stuff for your fitness. I I also have a very similar trouble kind of reconciling behavior because it's it's an it's an awareness that you are engaging in contradictory behavior, but it's also an awareness on top of that, knowing that you're still going to continue with those behaviors. And it's very hard to, to break that sort of line of thinking. Um, and for me, how I've tried to reconcile, reconcile these sort of contradictory beliefs or like what Orwell, Orwell would say is like double think. I don't think it's the exact same context, but um, this, these ideas of holding two contradictory positions is I think it comes down to this idea of, 
um, meaning of life, the meaning of life. And this is maybe an answer to the question right at the beginning, which is what is the greatest mystery of, of, of um, what is the greatest mystery or the unanswered question to me, meaning is like the biggest unanswered question and how I've sort of maybe dealt with these oscillations in my life is um, envisioning this point where, where envisioning this sort of ideal this yeah vision envisioning the sort of ideal and whenever i'm whenever i am confronted with some sort of oscillation between good and evil or maybe a less dramatic um like contradictory beliefs um i i sort of project myself into the future and then compare it to this ideal and think which one do i want to where do i want to be you know is it is it the one where I'm have grandkids and I'm able to recite mountainless Montaigne uh, letters of Montaigne's poetry, or is it the one where maybe I'm like 59 and I don't know, maybe I'm dying of diabetes. I don't like, obviously I'm being extremely like hyperbolic, but that's sort of how I reconcile it. Um, But I I think this comes back back to one of my points before um, about like philosophizing is learning to die and like how we use and utilize philosophy to learn how to live as well. Um, and so, I mean, to your point and to your, what you were saying, um, what you're saying was um, obviously these are like super hard things to sort of deal with, but I'm sure that you'll get to a point that you'll be able to be able to reconcile both of these and come out on the other end. But I also understand how difficult it is for sure i'd like to show something that's in front of me that screams what we're talking about uh take a look and it connects to religion uh so i don't know if you can see that painting oh i feel like i've seen this before but i don't know what it is yep it's in a from hinduism and indian myth can you guys see what's happening here? Uh, is it like a tug of war? Yeah, it's this pull and push between the two sides. On one end, there is gods or those that come from heaven. And on the other side, there's uh, the demons that come from hell. And what's happening essentially is this uh, fight between them. They're trying to find eternality. They're fi- trying to... Uh, get the elixir of life the i guess the the meaning of life that that Xavier you just mentioned and uh the point is that they needed both to exist and g- work together in order to bring this out and um i don't know this this idea of dualities and trying to reconcile with these contraries is something that i have been struggling with but the more i i f- surrender to this and uh, accept it or kind of use my curiosity to explore these dualities. Um, I find it quite fascinating when I'm, or I find it very, very profound experience when it's both are able to, I'm able to hold both those ideas in my head, which is very like ironic, or I, I don't know what the word is, but it's just that it doesn't make sense yet. It makes sense. And it's just like, wow, that there is some profound experience in being able to coexist with the contraries. And so, I don't know, that, that's kind of how I reconciled with this, which is that life would not work without death, and there is no light without darkness, and darkness without life, light, and again, they're just two sides of the same coin. 
So that like, seeing that somewhere uh, is what brings meaning to my life, or is how I reconcile with uh, these these things that fight sometimes within. I have a question for you both, um, based on something you just said, Joshua. Uh, you know, if if right now, let's just assume we only know this one mode of being, and that's life. Whatever that is to us, that's what it is. We don't really know or experience death but based on this you know this maybe this this idea that there's two two forces maybe if you will or two distinct entities if you will um i'm just thinking about how about how about <laughs> i have an interesting story i want to share with you both, but how about life before how about life before life well maybe not even life is the right word but pre-life if you will you know, what, how does that fit into all of this? Um, that quick story I want to share. So um, my mother, she's very, uh, she's very superstitious. Uh, she's, she's almost, a, I would describe her very mystical in, in some ways. Um, yeah, she, uh, she, her lineage is Berber. So uh, I don't know if, if, if either of you are familiar with the Berber people of North Africa. Um, they're indigenous to the to the land of North Africa, so they have been there for uh, a long, long time. Um, and I, 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 by the way, Xavier, I don't think it was at all noted, but um, so I, I live in I live in Boston. I was born here, but my parents immigrated here from Algeria in in the eighties. So that's sort of where my I guess lineage uh, hails from. Um, and I'm sharing that because my mother's particular lineage is not just necessarily Algerian. I mean, what it means to be Algerian is many, many things. You know, Algerians um, can look like can look like anything. It's a it, we're a very diverse people in terms of our skin color, in terms of our uh, whatever. You know, our, our I guess our, uh, our our physiognomy, our physique. Um, but but. My mother hails, hails from a culture which is which is really rooted and uh, deeply um, in intuition, you know, in 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 in, in sort of in sermons, um, in, in natural psychedelics. Now, my mother has never tried psychedelics, and it's true that not all Berbers today, you know, practice the usage of psychedelics. I guess in their you know in their day to day practices, but. Um, you know, you'll you'll see you'll see old old grandmothers uh, smoking a pipe, um, uh, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, usually hash, hash is what's grown in the region. And, um, anyway, I, I I share all of that just to provide a little bit of context for my mother. So, uh, when my mother was pregnant with my youngest sister, um, we had a lot of we had a, a mouse infestation uh, at my house at the time. Um, and, and there were mice running around everywhere. Um, and my mother was pregnant with my younger sister at this time. And, um, and it wasn't until many, many years later that when uh, my younger sister was a little bit older, she would, she would tell us and tell my younger sister as well directly. She would tell her, you, you know, you're, you're, you're energetic and you're hyper because um, while I was holding you in my belly, uh, I, was, I myself was, became skittish because of the mice. And, 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 and she, she, in an endearing way, but she describes my youngest sister sometimes as being, as being, you know, like a little mouse, you know, jumping around to and fro, very energetic. Um, and so I, I share that just because um, I think it's interesting, you know, the, 
I mean, was my youngest sister when she was in my mother's womb, was she, was she alive? Or was there a point even before that, even beyond that, 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 um, I don't know, that her inputs were already being set into place, you know, her, her, her mold for, for existence was already being um, dictated in some way. So I, I, I would love to hear what you both have to say. And, and so okay, can I repeat that question of what I hear somewhere and try, tell me if I'm right. Somewhere, the, could the question be, um, is uh, the life we live, this whatever we become, um, already written? And I know in, even in Hindu religions, or at least what my parents have said, is that everything is already written. And um, it, I guess it comes down to that nature nurtures thing in some ways. And I'm curious to know, is that what you're saying, that there is a lot of nature that comes into this picture of when a person uh, is born correct me if if i'm wrong someone uh i guess i guess yes and no i i, I mean um i wasn't necessarily uh, referring to nature nurture i might have not explained myself well i was just sharing that story mm -hmm. uh, only to only to um i guess launch us into a, a different a slightly different discussion you know we've been talking about death which is maybe what we presume to be to be in a sequ in, in, in sequence what follows life but what about before life would you mm -hmm. describe that as a different death would interesting you, do we have a word for this do you mm. all have an understanding for this i know we can go in a lot of different directions here you know we can talk about reincarnation are we in another you know fold of our very long life um and and i i guess i'm curious to to hear what you both have to say about that pre-life i guess state and how that might inform death or might lead us to ponder about death in a, in a... I, I get what you're saying now um i can respond or save it if you have something i'm happy to listen to you yeah um i was listening to this podcast um it's by this harvard psychiatrist who's from india but he has this very uh, eastern uh, philosophy that he incorporates into his work and he was talking about like death and the fear of death and all these a similar topic to what we're discussing today. And he brought up this interesting point, which is about um, the worry of death and like the fear of death. And he was saying that if you fear life after death, then you must also start fearing the life before death. Um, something along those lines. And he says, because the uncertainty and the element that you were never, you were never there and where you were like the idea like obviously like on a biological level you can maybe make some sort of argument you know where you were but like, realistically speaking like the energy before death and the energy after death is exactly the same it's not there right but our, our anxieties and our enmities around after death they're almost very, they're very very similar to before death and so he was making the case that if you if you're trying to be logically consistent i, I may i may be uh, mis uh, miswording him um but i think the argument he was making is that if you are worried about life after the death and you should also be worried about where you were before death uh, but before you were born and he was basically using this as a, some sort of therapeutic measure of the best way to cure it is to stop worrying because essentially um you were never worrying before so why should you worry after because it's essentially the same endpoint um, that, that was the, the only real, that was the only thought I had, not really mine. Um, and I don't know if I've misquoted him completely, but, um, I think that's, that, that was the point I'd take. I can link to the video as well.
This is, yeah, I agree. This is very interesting because it reinforced what I was thinking of when Osama spoke about this point, which is that we don't need to worry because I believe it's a circle. It's cyclical. And that linearly, like that if this is a spectrum of life, that this is where we come in, this is our starting, this is our end, and this is after, and this is before, we think of it linearly. But I think if we zoom out and see this, this will eventually become a circle. And the life after death and the life before death, or whatever you want to call that, is essentially connected to each other. Um, and connecting it to Eastern, um, Eastern philosophies, I am inspired again by Taoism to, to kind of visualize this and use nature as a metaphor to understand this. And first thing that came to my mind is the cycle of water and how water kind of uh, revolves or what, how water changes its shapes. And Taoism says, be like water, flow like water. And uh, I mean, if we see where water comes from or this water cycle, we see how water in, is in some way eternal and that it changes states from one to the other. I mean, it's a river and then it goes into the ocean and the ocean evaporates, turns into clouds, the clouds rain, they turn into ice, the ice comes, melts again and goes into a river. So it's somewhere I believe life before death and after death is where we get stuck with our dualistic mind and they, they both are essentially just the same. I mean, it's a cycle and I don't know if you guys visualize it, but that's how I kind of see life after death and before death. So, so then I'm, I'm, I'm curious, a uh, question I'd like to pose to both of you, uh, in, in, you know, it's your, to the best of your abilities, you know, where, where do you think we were before? I mean, even be pre-womb, pre I would say, or you can go there too. But, you know, if you really had to think where, you know, where were you, Xavier, you know, before 1990, whenever it was you were born, I'm taking a guess, I don't know, you were born in the 90s, um, or you, Shashwood, you know, um, where, 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 <laughs> is my question. The simple answer to this or a very metaphysical answer to this would be just here and now. We've always, always been here. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but that's my simple take on it. I, I, the sense of me wasn't here until I was born, yes because who I am or the social, it's a social identity constructed, right? After I'm born this human condition. But before that, I believe um, I'd, I might not have existed, but the essence of whatever I am somewhere was already here. And that's where it's like nature can, uh, sorry, energy can never be created nor destroyed. It's, it always just is, everything just is. And it's always here that going back to the Buddha's meme about be here now. And it's like, no, where, but where, how do we reach it? It's like, no, I, I, I've always been, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's my take. I, I, I have this, this urge to sort of, I don't know. I take issue with what you said for some reason. It really struck it struck a chord with me. I was like, here and there. I don't know if I agree tell with me, that. tell me, yes, because it's a very like one and one sided take. Like my inner objective, like my inner objective, my inner objectivity is like conflicting. Like there's a thousand things like that. Like I don't know. I, I think I, I understand what you're saying though. Um, the the point that I. I feel like I should challenge it now. I don't challenge it. No, I, I was just thinking like, 
when you say like the essence is there, but like, how do you know the essence is there? That's the thought I had, but then I don't want to, I don't want to ask these, qu- I don't want to go maybe too much. Cause then this is going to lead to like another three hour digression about what is, and like, where does it come from? And then how much of it is nature nurture? Um, because what I was interested in was like, when you thought, when you posed a question to us was um, where my initial thought was obviously like biology, like, maybe a more like a simple question right but i think we're asking maybe a bit more abstract like you know where do we like the like our essence our being like you're saying Shashwa, the essence where does that come from because you know every human being like out of like seven eight billion or whatever it is in some in some weird way everyone is different on this level so where does that difference come from how come how come it's like why are we why are we I, I don't even know now i think this is maybe maybe this i think this may be a good point to wrap like everything all together which is maybe this is one of those mysteries the un the mysteries that we can't solve or maybe we cannot solve yet um maybe that's a good way to kind of tie everything together i i'd like to just say this is quite funny to me because uh, i was also trying to like when i started off giving my first thought that was the biggest mystery it's like where matter, where biology, but then how has biology and just like, if you were to think of the origins of the universe, right? The scientific theory is that there's a big bang and that's the essence of everything. And that's where we've all come from, whatever that may, 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 be, may be. But how does that one big bang lead to such a complex reactions of uh, matter interacting, like atoms coming together to form cells, cells interacting to form tissues, tissues forming uh, fucking organs and organs forming this human body, which then turns into this awareness, this sense of I, which is just such a weird thing. Like, how do you even grapple with that? I have no clue, but I, I, I guess that is the conclusion, which is that is, for me at least, one of the greatest mysteries uh, to be solved, the nature of our consciousness and how matter turns into the subjective experience. Yeah, it looks like you're going to say something. Let's go ahead. Just just wanted to say that this is, yeah, the, the last maybe 20 minutes of this discussion have really, yeah, they've, they've been for me quite profound. They're very, very interesting. But I just wanted to ask another question, you know, what are the implications then of even our local discussion here? Like what, you know, when we walk away from this call, when which we eventually will, you know, hopefully we'll get to sleep. <laughs> Our maybe mini deaths might. away maybe, us. You know. Maybe we will. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's all out there on the table. But I'm curious, you know, what, what are the implications of this? You know, how do you then, how do we then? Go about and live our lives. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not in any way trying to say that this conversation, you know, is, is utterly earth earth shattering for, for for all of us here. But in general, you know, th- thinking about these things and, and all of the things we've said, uh, what what are some like immediate implications or takeaways for you both? I love how you ask this question, Sam. I firstly uh, just show my gratitude and appreciation for this, because uh, three ways to summarize this. Uh, what you've done is first we spoke about what, what is this greatest mystery? 
and we spoke about the so what, like what is this existential stuff, this fear, this blah, 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 you know, so much stuff. And then the final question that kind of ties up that story, that cycle is now what? Okay, we've gone through this journey, the hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell would say, where we've entered death and fear and this and that, and we're, you know, fighting that and coming across on the other side, the way to tie it off is now what? We've, we've come into, uh, emerged on the other side of something that we've all kind of gone th through um, the practical implications of this. So I, I absolutely love that. I, I just wanted to appreciate that. Did you want to go ahead and answer that now, Shashwat? So what what now? It's it's something I still have to think about. I, I tend this is the bridge between the esoteric and subjective and the objective, and I, it, it's going to yeah. take a while for me to come. So I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah. Well, I think maybe okay my objective sense is coming in again now so I, I this is what i'm thinking maybe i'll go shashwat go and then maybe we can i'd be really really curious to see what you think uh us just because i think this has been quite maybe a more personal it's touched on a personal point for you and like you said it's been quite profound and i'd be very very curious to to potentially have that as kind of like the end point um and then we can see um i guess for me what so what now I think the the first thing is I want to read more about the philosophy of death because I, I recall there was there's this one book I've it's I think it's literally titled the philosophy of death I don't really know that's like the my most immediate thing um, but maybe like the practical stuff is maybe that's boring um, I don't know um, maybe like on a more like philosophical level now what hmm. I would say that I need to take a reflection on the people that have maybe passed in my life and really think of the implica implications of what that has meant for me and maybe really deeply think about that. Um, yeah, I, I think that that is maybe that is maybe a more profound or more interesting point to explore because for me, like I've said, I've had people that have close to me that have died, but because of this sort of emotional distance, it's not had that same impact. Um, and I think this may be a good opportunity to explore, explore that and maybe really think about what, what, what it was and what that meant and what are the implications now? I think that's maybe something I really want to do. Um, but yeah. What about you, Shashi? Yeah, so I'd like to share a poem that just came to my mind. Um, but before that, I'd like to say that I completely agree with what you just said, Xavier. It's like thinking more about death implies how we live life and what I'm going to do with the life I have left. It, it's definitely certain something to think about. And as I, I was observing how I was behaving in this conversation and where I was going or where my mind was going, was I guess I could say was going more towards the esoteric, the spiritual side, that, that side that lies beyond. And somewhere I tend to almost fetishize that side and uh, kind of really poeticize that in a way where it's just something to kind of drool over. But uh, on the more practical side, I also believe I have this material life to live, that this matter is what creates this other side. And so the poem that I like to share that kind of sums up what now for me 
um, goes this way. So it's about spirit and matter. Seek the real practical life, but seek it in a way that does not blind you to the spirit working in, in, in it. Seek the spirit, but do not seek it out of spiritual egotism, from spiritual greed, but for it is because you want to apply it unselfishly in a practical life. In it, the material world. Make use of the ancient principle, spirit is never without matter, matter never without spirit. So that might not have made full sense because I kind of broke the flow of it. But the point being, uh, I, 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 for me, it's like I should recognize the material side of this and uh, also take care of the material side, my body, my health, uh, my well-being, uh, how I live financially, my area, my space, you know, just the material world. Focus on that uh, while I'm in this pursuit of truth and esotericism and you know whatever lies on the spirit side and uh, that's kind of my now what Usama how about you hmm. I think um, I'm thrown into more of a conundrum but um, you know generally summarizing what you both said I think I also need a little bit of time to process this conversation like a lot of uh, very interesting and abstract uh, matters were touched upon and were said. Um, so it will definitely, I think, take me a few days to digest, you know. Um, but I think most immediately, uh, I don't know, I feel, I feel incrementally less afraid of death. If anything, I feel more curious about it. You know, I, I feel like, huh, you know, what would it, Jeez, it's just it's it is so interesting. It is that it's that you know maybe the most certain uncertainty. You know, it's just like it's gonna come anyway. So knowing that, knowing that, you know, it's just it's it's uh it's absolutely fascinating. It really is. I mean. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. I'd like to freeze that, man. That was such a profound moment for me. The most certain uncertainty is death. <laughs> and that just, that's the paradox. It goes like, <laughs> holy shit. That's the right. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So you much. might disagree, Xavier. You might disagree. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to play devil's advocate for a certain yeah. context. No, <laughs> no I, um, I agree. I'm really tempted to ask one more question, but we've been talking for a while. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, try, I'm a bit stuck with. I'm tempted to ask a question, Shashi, about utopia. But maybe we can maybe try and approach this with some brevity. Sure. I'll go ahead and ask it. So, Usman, um, Osama, sorry. Um, okay. Um, a question that we ask all of our guests and, uh, you know, got into some insight into my uh, idea of utopia is that we try to pose like what in an ideal world, um, whether it's realistic or not realistic, what, what would your utopia look like? And potentially, I don't know if the idea of death and the uh, conversation ties into that some way, maybe it doesn't, but maybe if you could briefly go over, um, I know this is this is quite a dense question, but as maybe you, if you try and explore that, like what do you think your yeah. utopia would look like? 
Interesting. Or a part of it. A, yeah, it's very fascinating. I had never considered utopia, you know, in the same uh, context as death. So that's that's very interesting. I have definitely done much work thinking about utopias. I've written out my own utopia. Um, it involves a lot of um, freedom of the body, you know, uh, a, f a freedom of 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 sex, of you know, engaging in in open open and consensual and pleasurable sex without it being demonized or villainized. Um, as I said, I'm interested in the body, so the body is is always a, a focal point of of mine. Um, but yeah, in this world, I called it filia terra. Um, and it was designed to be a utopia. That was maybe the primary component, you know, um, and, and language. Uh, I'm also very interested in language. So, um, you know, I, I get hung up uh, all the time on linguistic differences, you know. Um, it frustrates me sometimes. It's like we were just talking about the Shashua too a week ago, you know, sometimes you just want to be able to send out exactly, you know, the, what you are thinking and embed it in the other person's mind. But you can't do that. You, I mean, we have many ways of communicating ourselves in today's world. But the primary way, which is the way we're doing right now, is talking. And you know, and 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 to 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 to, to convert this thought that we have here, or maybe here, wherever that thought lies, has to go through you know many layers, many filters before it it reaches um, the other person. And and as it's traveling too, it goes through filters, and then it yet. Yeah, another filter when it reaches the person and their own interpretation. So in any case, you know, in in this I guess utopia to bring it back to that, um, the language is is um, there. There is no single language as today, as in our world. There's not a singular language, but the distinction here is that um, there there is no codified language. There is no there is no dictionary. There is no uh, there are no structures of grammar and. Again, it's a utopia, so bear with me. You know, it's like, how would that make sense? Then where is the system? You know, and how do you keep things together? Um, but but it's primarily done through dance. So the language is, is constantly ephemeral, and that's the that's the primary language on this island. So again, relating to the body. You know, if you want to say something, you perform a gesture, um, and that person may or may not understand exactly what you mean. Um, but 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 you know, you're 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 going around and you're having sort of dance-offs with people. And and there and there might be some people who, when they see you do something, they're like, "Oh, I get that." And you go, and they go over to you, and they and they do something back to you, you know. And and then they're like, "Yeah, we get each other." So in that instance, a language is born. And the distinction here, though, is that when that language is born, it's not instantly codified. You know, the the, the people of Filiaterra don't really desire to to capture and to regulate language. I mean, what was just said and what was just felt was understood in that moment. But to sort of the propagated onwards, um, I think there's a disservice to humans or maybe to the people of Filiaterra because, you know, we change, but does our language change as quickly as we change? I mean, language for me is, is uh, I think it's one of the best tools we, we have at our disposal to express ourselves to other humans, to communicate. But I think it's also very static. I think it's one of the more static tools that we have. You know, the moment we speak, the words are dead and the moment is passed. So anyway, now, now that's, that's, I guess, my vision of a utopia. It's, it's very, um, it's accepting, it's loving, it's caring, you know, and you can, you can communicate in whatever way you want. You don't have to follow uh, the, you know, the ordains of, of, of a structured language. Um, 
should you choose to, it's there. Like that's also a possibility, but it's not necessary. Um, and also, I guess it's a localist society, if you will, you know, there aren't a lot of people there. And I just, I personally believe, um, I think it's very hard to, to um, maybe to, to, to achieve utopia uh, um, in, a, in a healthy, that, that's healthy for every, you know, every person that's participating in that utopia uh, on a large scale. I don't know, maybe, you know, definitely is not the only uh, way of perceiving a utopia. But, but finally, not to, I, you did mention brevity. I apologize. I tend to ramble. I, I think we all have the, you know, that trait within us at times. Um, uh, death, you know, um, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. I've never considered that, you know, in the, in the same context as a utopia. You know, would the people of Filia Terra die? I think after this discussion, I think after this this this, this discussion, I would I would be more okay with the idea of incorporating death into into a utopia, because because I feel that a pure utopia, you know, a utopia suspended completely in the abstract, um, is 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 just entirely un unrealistic for for one reason and that that reason is that it um it's it's just parody it's just it's static there's no there is no uh, opposing force like you were talking about shush but there's no i mean utopias for, for me they just seem they seem static you know they seem static without i guess uh, sort of pulsing an opposite force i mean what drives utopias you know if everyone is equal or maybe not in some utopias but there seems to be some sort of baseline that or and some ceiling that you know these some parameters that are not surpassed so if that's the case and i'm curious please feel free to you know challenge me on this idea but i i find you the ideas of utopias to be um idealistic and that's completely okay but for the same reason i think that they're they're static so i think yes i think death would have to be a part of my utopia and i think even if death is a part of a utopia, I think it still could be a, a good utopia. I think it's the way we condition the people of that utopia to, to engage with death. Maybe we've done it all wrong. Maybe we've, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, our original, our ancestors, uh, you know, were afraid of death and for, for good reason, but, but, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> wow, Usama, this is a whole conversation because that triggered so many different thoughts in my mind i i would just like to respond with one thing so you spoke about just uh wait i i'm kind of blanking now you spoke about death and then you brought up this idea of never mind i just lost this so sorry about that i i think this uh, for some strange reason, this kind of touches on this idea of um, mystery, right? Like sometimes things happen and then they leave us and it escapes us, but it seems like it's just come back to you. Yes, this idea of utopia. I, I would just like to clarify that because we think utopia is static because it's just that one side, which is that ideal side. Um, but the word utopia, just for your reference, is that place or utopia was the, the word that was coined by sir thomas moore was a pun or an irony between or, or kind of joke between good place and no place so how i see utopia is not that one side it is that center and 
it relates to this whole uh, brand about why utopia is now and not some place in the future because it's it's that place we will never get to we can always but but we can always keep moving towards um it so i just wanted to clarify that because you spoke about uh how utopia is somewhere static and that's a whole other discussion because um it relates to the ideas of truth and truth with a capital T, a lot of philosophers, some argue that truth is static versus truth is dynamic. And I, I don't want to open that route up right now. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's like, I, I believe the way we see utopias could change, or at least I would like to change it in how I see it. I feel really tempted to end on a quote again, because I did that last time um I've, I've, I've just finished this book by Alain de Baton on Marcel Proust um and there's this quote I'm trying to find it hold on it's so uh, this ties into utopia but it also ties into death and it ties into experience and how we see things and to perspective and that also ties into what i was mentioning earlier about maybe having a stoic surrender to to death or not even death but everything else oh yes <laughs> there you go yeah the exact same is that, is that the book uh, yeah, yeah that's the one yeah, yeah wonderful book yeah and Marcel Proust, he says, I don't know if it's in this book, but it's a quote that I've read before. And he says, the real voyage of dis discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And I think this is, you know, it's about shifting your perspective and shifting the way that we view the world. Um, and that in some sense is how we learn to philosophy. We, why we philosophize things is to see them in a different light, to see them in a different vein. And I think that may be the perfect way that we can end the conversation here. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to the, to the both of you for you know, a wonderful two hours spent.